right, the church in a changing world, um, and I think by changing world, we definitely are talking about uh, different people starting to mix with us. It's nice when everybody's the same, uh, but when, when, it, when uh, new people move into the neighborhood, it can be a, a big challenge. So I'd like to read a couple verses from the Apostle Paul, and then um, I'm going to go into a rant we call it for, all right? Paul says in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is probably from the late 40s in Paul's ministry. And I believe that Galatians is the earliest letter in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. There's debates about dating of any New Testament book. And I, you can humor me by disagreeing with me, but I could care less what, how you date books. I've been there and done that, and uh, it, it's never going to be completely resolved. But Paul had no blueprint for what he was doing. Uh, Jesus did not encounter uh, the inclusion of large number of Gentiles in his ministry in the Galilee. And so the Apostle Paul ventures into the Roman Empire and suddenly discovers all these Gentiles in synagogues want to be a part of this movement. And he sort of had to make things up as he went along. He had to be a good theologian. He had to listen to the Spirit. But he was working things out as he ministered, as trying to figure out how do we deal with all these Jewish Gentile issues, male-female issues, slave-free issues. These were not largely problems that he was facing uh, in Israel, in in the Holy Land. So Paul, uh, in his earliest letter, he knew that because salvation or justification was based upon faith and not upon works of the law, that Jews and Gentiles had to be accepted together because Christ had brought them into a new family. And when he says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, he doesn't mean Gentiles are no longer Gentiles, or Jews are no longer Jews, but that those distinguishing marks, I mean, you can't eliminate maleness and femaleness. Uh, he, he just knew that those weren't the final identifying markers, that they were going to find a unity that transcended their diversity. And so in Galatians 3, Paul comes to this point because of the debate that he's seen going on in Galatia, and sort of in the middle of Turkey today, uh, where uh, Gentiles were believing, and Jewish believers, from the men, the men from James, Paul calls them at one spot, uh, were insisting at some level that in order to be a full member of the people of God, you had to be Irish. Well, that's not actually what he said. He said you had to be Jewish. And to do that, that meant that they were going to have to undergo circumcision. 
they were going to have to start stop eating shrimp and pork and start eating kosher, and they were going to have to learn to live according to the Torah. That was the circumcision party. And Paul said, no way. Jews can be Jewish, and Gentiles can be Jewish, but the family of God is going to transcend this. Now, in a letter that he wrote, depending again how you date it, uh, called Colossians, uh, a letter to the Colossians, and Paul was in Ephesus, which is a, was a premier center for the Pauline mission in his second and third missionary journeys. Paul says in Colossians 3.11 something very similar. He says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian. A barbarian is someone from a Greek perspective who speaks bad Greek or has a bad accent. You know, you live in a very accented world. You, you can tell the Scots from the English, from the Irish. You know, they're all the same to me. My grandpa was from Fife, but I still can't hear the difference between. But I bet, I bet you can hear American accents as all the same. But we hear those Southerners. We know that they have never learned to speak English the way it's supposed to be spoken. So th- this is what barbarian would mean to Paul. Is that this is it's a very Greek perspective to call someone a barbarian. They 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 say bar 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 rather than speak properly. So they're neither barbarian nor Scythian. Now a Scythian, uh, you you could say this is um, uh, a Viking, someone who comes from the north, uh, uncivilized. Uh, violent, eat with their hands. But a Scythian for a first century Jew and a first century Gentile was someone who uh, was at the, it was like a hillbilly or someone at the lowest level of society. And Paul said, in Christ, there will be neither Jew nor Gentile, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, Slave or free. For Christ is all and is in all. This was Paul's experiment. This was Paul's mission. To go out and preach the gospel in the Roman Empire. And whoever came got to be a part of the family of God in a local church. And the mission of Paul was to bring Jews and Gentiles to the table together and like it. And enjoy it. And to thrive. And to demonstrate to the Roman Empire that all the statuses of the Roman Empire, senator, etc., they would all be eliminated in the church. And that everybody would be one in Christ. And that was Paul's mission. To create a kind of society that had never been seen in the Roman Empire. That is the mission of the church to this day. And I can speak from America. We use this expression on a regular basis. 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in American society. Because Koreans worship with Koreans. And 
Presbyterians worship with Presbyterians, and Methodists worship with Methodists, and Anglicans with Anglicans, and not with Episcopalians. And whites worship with whites, and blacks with blacks. And we have the most segregated hour of society. Work is not like this. Our workplaces are far more integrated. And this is a demonstration of a colossal failure on the part of the church to implement the very vision that Paul set out to establish, Jews and Gentiles together. I'll give you an analogy, and then we we can live with this. There are three ways to make a salad. All right. There is the American way, there's the weird way, and there's the right way. All right. I'll start with the weird way. Uh, we, we like salads in our family, and we grow vegetables in our garden, and we are snobbish, so we eat kale and chard. We don't eat lettuce. That's for animals. Okay? especially iceberg lettuce. And we have broccoli and cauliflower and some dried raisins and cranberries and nuts. And we put in some olives and tomatoes and purple cabbage. And it's just a feast. All right, now here's how weird people eat their salads. They take all these elements of the salad and they put them in separate bowls. And then they eat them separately. So you have a, 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 your placemat, you have a series of maybe ten bowls where you have all these things separate. Now here's the American way of doing it. And I suppose that, that there are many Irish who eat their salads with their nose pinched or this way. And that is, they take all these elements and put them in a bowl and mix them up. We call that a tossed salad in the United States. No one's tossing anything, but they're mixing it. And then they load it with salad dressing so they don't have to taste the other stuff, like the baby spinach leaves. All right. So what happens is that they, all they taste is salad dressing, and that's the American way of eating salad. So if you go to an American restaurant and you order Caesar salad All you're going to taste is Caesar salad dressing. They have terrible uh, lettuce in there, and they have hard croutons. And they throw in cheese, and it makes you feel like you're having an Italian salad. The Italians don't eat salads, but they're glad for the credit. Now, here's the right way. It's the way I make a salad. All right? So we take uh, kale and chard and baby spinach leaves, And on our wooden uh, board, I chop these into small bits because a big piece of lettuce can be a real nuisance in throwing salad dressing on your face. It can kind of pop you in the gob on the way through, right? And so I chop it up, and then uh, we chop up all the elements, and we even pulverize the broccoli uh, heads and the cauliflower so they're into small bits. And then we put it in a bowl, We put in some Pecorino Romano cheese, because I like to say Pecorino Romano. It's Italian cheese. And then we put in olive oil. 
just a little bit, extra virgin olive oil. And sometimes when we feel particularly snobbish, we use avocado oil. I mean, that really takes it over the top. All right, now, I'm joking about some of these things, kind of. But this, this is the proper way to make a salad, we think. Now, I use this as an analogy. Sunday morning services is like the weird way of making a lettuce. Everybody in separate bowls. The reason in the United States that people are in separate bowls is because they're afraid of the American way. And the American way is to take one taste and colonize all the elements in the salad into the single taste. So if you go to a, you know, if you go to a Presbyterian church in the United States, if you're not Presbyterian, you feel really unwelcome. Or if you go to a Methodist church, they're going to make sure that everything is Methodist or an Anglican church, or a Baptist church. And so they make everybody, they try to force everybody into a single mold so that everybody tastes the same. Because it gets really weird when you have competing tastes in the same salad bowl, right? Well, I, I think that the, the problem is that we, we tend to force and coerce people into similarities and to all being alike. And that's why people have learned to separate so they can celebrate their diversity and difference and their particular wants and joys in church and worship. But there is a vision of the right way. And that is, people are designed by God to be mixed into the same salad bowl. But for the taste to come together and to be enhanced in the proper way, You have to have the oil of the Holy Spirit. And when the oil of the Holy Spirit is there, it will enhance the taste of each and bring unity to the bowl. All right, now that's my analogy of what Paul is trying to create. I wrote a book called A Fellowship of Difference, and it was originally called Life in a Salad Bowl. But my editor hates salads, so he refused to allow me to have the title Life in a salad bowl. So this is, this is one of the persecutions that authors face when editors have final control. What do they know about anything? You've never heard of my editors. You don't even know their name. So and I tell them that all the time. My name is on the book, not yours. I don't mind being called life in the salad bowl. So I would like to uh, say that Paul's vision was that the entire Christian life And his mission was to create salad bowls in every community in the Roman Empire. And his goal was not to get Gentiles saved, but to get saved Gentiles and saved Jews and saved slaves and and saved freed people and citizens and saved men and saved women in the same salad bowl, and love the celebration of diversity and unity in Christ. That was Paul's vision. All right. Now I'll stop here to see if you have any questions about what I've said so far. I like that. I don't like questions. I actually do. I'm a professor. We thrive on people 
not liking what we're saying. I would like to explore with you uh, how Paul worked this out. Because this is a great idea, isn't it? To bring together in, uh, in Port Rush or in, I'm going to try to say, Corain, something like that. It looks like coal rain, but when you say that, no, it's no. But I listen to you. You don't say coal rain. It's like coal rain. It's, it's really, it's really gentle. It's, a, it's pretty cool. You don't even hear it. See, the foreigners are going to teach you on how, what you're what you're saying, or in uh, Port Stewart, or in Belfast, um, that you. Uh, it is one thing to say I, I want a church that's diverse. And it's another thing to like it when it's actually happening. Because it is a far more of a struggle to bring together people who are not normally together for worship and community than it is to just say it's much easier if we stay apart. All right? And I'm not speaking here of the troubles, but I am. Not intentionally, but that's uh, this is... The world in which you live. We live in a world dramatically divided by racial divisions. And the news of the last few years have really exacerbated this. I don't mean that it's the news fault. They've, they've shown the reality of the tensions in our society. And I teach at a seminary where almost 50% of my students are minorities. And we experience in classrooms the church that Paul wanted, and we gather together on Sundays in churches that Paul did not want. And we know that. But we are experiencing uh, the diversity of the church in our classrooms because we're all being brought together. Blacks and whites and Latin Americans and people of different languages. So... But I would like... Uh, it's, it's one thing to say, I just think it's a fantastic idea... It's another thing to know how it works. So, I'm going to suggest to you that Paul actually, in front of us, worked this out in one of his letters. He actually uh, brought his theology to bear on a very precise situation. And it's a a letter uh, that we largely ignore. It's rarely touched upon in the lectionary of the Anglican Church. And the Revised Common Lectionary, it's rarely preached on in evangelical churches, but it's standing there waiting for our exposition. It's called Philemon, where Paul is addressing a a slave owner, folks. Philemon is a slave owner, and his slave's name is Onesimus, and the power is in Philemon's hands to do with him what he wants. So I'd like to look at this letter as an instance of how Paul operated in bringing together one expression, neither slave nor free. What does that mean in the Pauline churches and what does it look like? In light of this letter, we can say how Paul would have worked with male and female and Jew and Gentile. And there are some alarming uh, uh, insights from this letter. I would uh, I'd like to call your attention to the fact that when, when N.T. Wright wrote his 
massive two-volume book on Paul called Paul and the Faithfulness of God, he began with Philemon. He, and it was very clever because it's largely ignored, even by Pauline scholars. So I love that he began there because this is the vision that Paul is actually trying to implement. I'm going to look at this through the lens of Onesimus, who's the slave. So I'd like to talk a little bit about slavery in the Roman Empire and what it would have meant for someone like the Apostle Paul to be saying what he did. How do you cover slavery in the Roman Empire in 10 minutes? I shall try. It is uh, a standard estimate is that 30% of the Roman Empire were slaves. 30%. 250,000 slaves were sold annually in the Roman Forum. When a slave was sold, it was standard for the slave to be put on a block and stood on the block nude with a sign around the neck that on that sign, a chain around the neck with a sign on it of some kind of writing, a document that would have documented any weaknesses of that slave. 250,000 times a year, approximately, slaves were sold in the Roman Empire. We do not know how Philemon, the slave owner in Colossae, obtained Onesimus. We don't know how he got him. He could have purchased him, which was pretty common, or he could have been born in his household uh, to a woman, uh, in a slave girl in his household. Or he could have somehow acquired a slave through trade. Slavery, by definition, folks, whether in the Roman Empire or in our world, is a means of securing and maintaining an involuntary labor force by a group in society that monopolizes political and economic power. We might distinguish, as Americans are very keen to distinguish, New World slavery from ancient Roman slavery. We want to save the New Testament from what we know to be the case in the United States in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. But a slave is a slave is a slave. A slave is someone who is owned and under the power of another person who does not have the capacity to, to make determinations for themselves. Most slaves were born into slavery. Uh, some were captured in war, and sometimes Rome went into wars just to capture more slaves because they needed slave markets. But the important category is that a slave uh, was... Um, a slave male remained a boy his entire life because if he could be called a man, he could be married and have inheritance and pass on inheritance. So Romans instituted laws and principles to make sure that Roman slave males remained boys. Now you see this slightly played out in the language of the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, when they refer to 
the centurion servant, where one gospel calls him in Greek, apais, which could be translated son, but probably means a, ser- a servant. And the other passage calls him a doulos, a slave. And John 4, probably talking about the same person, calls him a huios, a son. And that is a move. That is a radical social move to call a slave a son. So Onesimus would have remained a boy. Slaves were at the deposition and under the power of their masters. Slave boys were tools. Aristotle would say that they were tools designed by nature for nothing other than slavery. And he included Jews in this, in this circle. But, no, it wasn't Aristotle who called Jews. Another, another Roman writer called them slaves by nature, uh, Jews. So um, the, these are uh, people who are under the power. It was common in the Roman Empire for a Roman slave owner to use his slaves as sexual tools, sometimes called vessels. And they used both female slaves and male slaves as sexual vessels. Now we're getting to the nitty-gritty, the ugly reality of the Roman Empire. The, the ordinary Roman male had procreational sex with his wife and recreational sex with prostitutes, with slaves, male and female. We don't know Onesimus's story. We would say on probability that he had been used. We don't know enough about Philemon to know. We do not know enough about Philemon prior to becoming a Christian to know what his character was like. So Onesimus is a slave. All right, now I want to venture into this letter and say a few things about Onesimus, and then a, a couple things about Philemon, and then we're going to read this letter together, and you'll see how Paul brings together two worlds in Christianity where he is striving for a brand new reality. Onesimus is from Colossae. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, we learn this, that Onesimus is from Colossae. He ran away. Now, that's the standard explanation that Onesimus ran from Colossae. But there are actually two theories about this, and they're both worthy of serious consideration. Anybody who's absolutely certain about either one knows too much because they know more than we could know. All right. If he ran away, that's called in Latin a fugitivus. If he ran away, he ran away because he was seeking a better life, which meant life in the household of Philemon was unbearable for Onesimus. Now, the problem is, if you run away from Philemon, you probably are not going to run away to Paul, who knows Philemon, because Paul can say, I know who you are, and we're going to put the authorities on you right now. So many people would say, instead of being a fugitivus, a runaway who was seeking freedom, who happened to run into Paul in Ephesus, some would call him an arrow. 
and that is someone who was seeking legal means of advocacy with Paul. He knew Paul had power with Philemon, and he has a grievance with Philemon, so he runs to Paul and says, Paul, only you can help me in this situation. That's a less likely explanation, I think, than that he ran away. But either way, uh, we, we don't know for absolute certain. But we do know that somehow Onesimus ends up in Paul's hands in Ephesus. I think Ephesus, not Rome. In Ephesus. And Paul is going to write a letter to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. What is more important is that Onesimus having fled to Paul, somehow becomes a Christian. He not only becomes a Christian, he becomes one of Paul's favorite workers. And Paul is evidently asking Philemon to send him back so that he can continue in the ministry with Paul in Ephesus. Now here's something that is, I think is missed in the social reality of the first century. When Paul sent the letter of that we call Philemon, to Philemon. It is evident that he probably sent this letter with Tychicus and Onesimus. There's a little bit of a question now as to who read the letter, because letters of Paul were not handed into Philemon's mailbox, and then Philemon opens it up and reads it. Paul would have had worked on this letter with Timothy. He says this in Colossians, that he worked on the letter with Timothy. And they would have coached someone to perform this letter in Philemon's presence. I have many New Testament professor friends who believe that it was Onesimus' responsibility to read this letter in public at the household of Philemon in front of the church. I wish I knew that, because that would be really good drama for a Baptist church, wouldn't it? Tychicus is the letter carrier of Colossians, so I, prob- I think it's probably more likely that Tychicus performed the letter. So he would have brought the letter into the church, and the church would have been gathered together, and this letter would have been read aloud. Now think about this. You're Onesimus, and you're a slave. You're under the power of Philemon. And this letter is going to be read to Philemon in public. He doesn't get to make this decision in private. It is very likely that Philemon has other slaves in the room. Now it's getting cool. Because every one of those slaves goes, what happens to him happens to me. So they're cheering. You know, they're in one side of the choir. And they're going, welcome him, welcome him. Welcome him. And there's another group of people in the church who are all going, what will you do? They're saying to Philemon, what will you do? So the drama of the letter is ramped up. So I imagine, now this didn't happen that I know of, but in my imagination it's going to happen. And that is, instead of putting Onesimus on the slave block, we're going to put Philemon on the slave block in the church of Colossae. And he's going to stand there, and we're going to have Onesimus or Tychicus read this letter to him, 
And people on one side of the church are going to be saying, what will he do? What will you do? And the others are saying, welcome him, welcome him. So the drama is ramped up. But in this letter, Paul is working out what it means in a church for there to be neither slave nor free. I don't believe Paul knew what this looked like in advance. He knew that this was going to vary from context to context. And that they were going to have to work out what it meant in an individual family for someone to be both a slave owner and a brother. For someone to be a slave and a brother. For someone to be a slave owner and a sister. For someone to be a slave and a sister in Christ. All right. And any questions on what I've said so far? All right. We ready? The moment of truth arrives for Philemon. So I'm going to read the letter. I'm, re- I'm going to read it from the NIV 2011, which varies a little bit from the NIV 1984. You know, they're always editing the NIV, and they don't ever tell you about it. You just have to catch it when it comes by you. I heard, I, I heard one last night when uh, Gavin was preaching. There was a variation from the new translation. All right, Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of King Jesus. Paul does not begin his letters with that word prisoner. So he's identified himself with the status of Onesimus, someone who's in bondage. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. Now, Philemon has no idea what's going on here. No one came in and, by the way, Philemon, there's going to be a letter read and you're in trouble. So you better decide what to do. So this letter would have been read to him in public and he would have had to listen to it not knowing what's happening. But he would have seen come into the room Onesimus. And he knows who he is. And he knows he's run away. And he knows he deserves punishment. And he's a brother in Christ, and he didn't know that. He's going to learn that. And now he's going to go, what do I do now? So, to Philemon, rhetorically, very clever by Paul, our dear friend and fellow worker. He starts with some positives. He's on his side now. Philemon is so pumped. Look at what the Apostle Paul is saying to me in public. Also to Aphia, our sister, and our Kippus, our fellow soldier. No one knows who these people are except the early church who invented the theory that Aphia was Philemon's wife and Archippus was their son. I'd love for that to be true, but no one knows. And to the church that meets in your home, uh, the, your home then would be Philemon's home. The NIV makes this very clear by the use of M dashes. It separates Aphia and Archippus into another category. So it goes from Philemon to the, house, the church that meets in your house. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins his letter the way he normally does, and then he launches into a thanksgiving. Rhetorically, this thanksgiving is designed to butter Philemon up. Do you know what I mean by that expression? Is that Irish? All right. You, you know, we buy Irish butter. You should know that. It's the only butter we buy is from Ireland. So, Paul is going to stroke Philemon's ego. 
He's rhetorically going to put him on his side and give him affirmations so that he will feel the power of Paul's voice. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. So Philemon is known for his love. There's a word that he's going to use. And for your faith. I pray that your partnership with us, strong word, koinonos in Greek, a partnership, a fellowship. This is the, the salad bowl is being described here. That your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Because we know where this letter is headed, we know exactly what this means. Philemon had no idea what this meant. Of course, I would love for my faith to grow effective in deepening my understanding of every good thing. What good thing are you talking about? Paul says, just hang on. We're not to the point yet. But Philemon's thinking, what's Onesimus doing standing there with the letter reader on his side? What's going to happen here? Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. This is a word that Paul's going to use two more times in this letter about refreshing the heart, and it's going to be used against Philemon. So this is very clever use of language by Paul, setting up Philemon for the ask in this letter. Now, this next verse is one of the funniest verses in the letter. And I don't know if it's funny uh, or if it's manipulative or if it's just brutally clever. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Once you say you can tell people what to do, but you're not going to tell them what to do, you've told them what they have to do. So rhetorically, it is very, very clever. Philemon knows he's obligated to Paul, but Paul doesn't want him to be obligated. You know what this like when you were a teenager. Your parents did this to you all the time. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to do this because you have to. I want you to do this because you love me which means I have to do this, all right? It is none other... Now, Paul is going to get... He's going to get uh, cleverly, uh, rhetorically designing language so that you're going to feel sorry for him. It's none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner in Christ Jesus that I appeal to you. So, I'm old. You know, we don't, have, we don't have a lot of time to work this out. We just, you know, you got to treat your elders with respect or feel sorry for me and do it because you feel sorry for me. But no, not Paul. He wants him to do it out of love. That I appeal to you, now listen to this language, for my son Onesimus. Brilliant language. This is the language. He doesn't use, I don't like the word son here. 
Because that means, if you know Greek, you think, is that huios, the Greek word for son? This is actually the Greek word techna for the ter- term child. And it's the language he often uses for Timothy, his very close co-worker, his sonergos. So I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Ooh, this is, the. do you say the penny dropped? Is that Irish? The penny dropped in the room. Everybody goes quiet. Onesimus, run away. He's become a Christian. And Paul loves him so much, he calls him his special son. Ooh, now what's Philemon? Everybody's looking at Philemon. Everybody's saying, what will he do? And the slaves are going, come on, man. Do something cool here. Let's be Christians and experiment with something we've never seen before in the Roman Empire. Now Paul plays on Onesimus' term. In N.T. Wright's translation called the Kingdom New Testament, he translates Onesimus, Mr. Useful. Because the Greek word Onesimus means useful. How would you like to grow up with the name useful? Slave masters were known. They named their, their children. They're slaves. And useful means I hired this guy to be useful. All right. Formerly, he was useless to you. So Onesimus became useless. But now he has become useful both to you and to me. And I think Philemon is saying, how is he useful to me? He just cost me labor. He may have stolen things from me. How is he useful? We're not let in on this, but you can see where Paul is headed. I am sending him who is my very heart. That's refreshed your hearts. In verse 7, that Paul said about Philemon, he's thankful for that. Same expression here. I am sending him back to you. I would have liked to keep him, which is a, say, a way of saying, I'd like to keep him which is a way of saying, please send him back. I need him for the ministry of the gospel in Ephesus. So that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. So clearly Onesimus' usefulness is that he is helping with the spreading of the gospel and the building of the church in Ephesus. Fantastic moment. But, now Paul's back. I did not want to do anything without your consent. So that any favor you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. There's this playing of obligation and freedom again that Paul puts on Onesimus. Paul, I mean on Philemon. Paul wants Christians to transcend their boundaries and borders on their own choice, but it's an obligation of the gospel. But he wants it to be done in freedom. But it's an obligation of the gospel. So he's going back and forth because he knows what God is doing in the world. Perhaps, and now Paul becomes Calvinistic, but only subtly so. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you, and this is Greek language designed to say that God is at work providentially in this. Perhaps he was separated you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. As a brother, no longer as a slave, 
but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Whoa. Now he's putting him back in Philemon's household as a brother, no longer as a slave. What does that mean for Philemon? And what does that mean for all the slaves in the room? Yeah, we like this. Good language, Paul. Thank you. You're on our team. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in a Christ. Now Paul is going to make his appeal. So if you consider me a partner, remember that language partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Wow. Powerful language. Receive him in the household as you would receive me, which means I'm an apostle. I'm received as an equal. I'm received as a brother. I'm received with honor. Now you do that to your slave. If he has done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. And all the people on the financial committee are saying, where's Paul got extra money for paying off people's debts? Where is he getting this sort of stuff? He's a tent maker. He's making his own money. I, Paul, this is the first time in the letter that Paul is actually writing. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention, listen to this, you owe me your very self. How is that? You became a Christian through my ministry. But it wasn't even through my ministry. It was through Epaphras, who is down in, who is in Ephesus, getting converted, and he came back and started three churches, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. And so Philemon becomes a Christian through Epaphras, so he's a stepson of the Apostle Paul, and Paul says, you owe your very self to me. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. And you know what this means if, you're, if he's called him to send him back. Refresh my heart in Christ. You've been refreshing everybody else's. How about mine? Which means send him back. I need some help in the ministry. Confident of your obedience. What happened to the love? You know What happened to the by your own uh, assent? But now he knows that the obligation of the gospel leads to the obedience of welcoming a slave in Christ in the house. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And now this is really clever. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. In other words, I'm coming. And when I get there, I'll know how you responded to my letter about Onesimus. Little extra heat in the letter. Now we get to people that are largely ignored. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He's the the one who planted the church. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right? So here we get Paul actually working out life in a salad bowl when you got to put a tomato with an olive, and how are you going to make them work together well? This is a brilliant letter and exposition of what it means to be one in Christ. No longer a slave, but a brother. Welcome him. All right? Questions, comments, criticisms?
then it is a conflict of tastes. Uh, I, I mean, I think this is, this is a metaphor, so I can explore it in my own way. So I would say that without the, the oil of the Holy Spirit, that we will have uh, tension in the bowl between the, uh, the various items. And in that tension, the, we will not be able to celebrate the glories of our differences and overcome our differences with a new kind of unity. So we need the Spirit. No Spirit, no unity. Um, yes, it's a, it's a very simple question. I think the answer is that people in the room have to surrender to the Spirit and however the Spirit wants to move in that group. So it is going to be dependent upon Christians not grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit in their midst. And we do a lot of grieving and quenching. Denominations from the very start have been fractures in the church. Can we agree on that? Every fracture believes that it is the authentic, true, faithful following of Christ. And every group that remained from which they fractured believe they are the true and faithful followers of Christ. So we have people who are, let's admit this, striving to be faithful to the gospel. I like that. We can build on that. But can we not at the same time then say, don't you realize that the New Testament called for us to be one in Christ, that Christ prayed for the unity of the church, that they may be one. And that doesn't mean just one spiritually. He expected them, he wanted them to get along with one another and to love one another and to understand that differences can be transcended by the Spirit. The Spirit transforms our inabilities or transforms our abilities and transcends our inabilities. So our inabilities are to get along with some kinds of people, but the Spirit can transcend that through us. So I would pray for unity, and we, we are going to achieve unity only if you and I individually will begin to cross, cross the room and sit down and coffee with people who are different from us in the church, from other denominations. We can't all be in the same building, probably, on Sundays. So we're going to be different that way, and there will be differences. But we ought to be able to express unity in our communities of all the Christians together in ways that dramatize to our community that this is a new kind of people that God is creating in our world. Well, I think the reality of church life is that, yes, everybody thinks they're glorifying Christ, but they often started by fighting with one another, right? Okay, so that's what we want to deal with in the unity. Can we get along for outreach and evangelism in the community together? Can we get along for missional activities together in the community? And if we can't, we need to start working on those by meeting with one another. I believe the most important thing here, is love. And someone this morning was talking about how to define love. And it's a rugged commitment to be with one another. That's where it begins. We have to make a rugged commitment to be with other Christians in our community in physically embodied ways, expressing our advocacy for one another rather than competing with one another. 
And then we can grow into Christ-likeness together. Behind you, yes. It's a good question. Um, The ecumenical movement had as its goal something that Jesus prayed for, right? That we may be one, right? It did. We must admit that. It believed that the way to get together was to the history of the ecumenical movement of the 20th century especially, uh, believed that the way that we would find unity was to reduce our theological propositions to the point where we could all agree, and the result of that was an absence of theology of the gospel. So the ecumenical movement lost its way because the Jesus who prayed for that also called us to be faithful that there would be salvation alone in him. And through his apostles articulated that. So this is not about compromising theology in one way, in any way. It is rather to recognize that that we may have some theological differences at times, but all those who are genuinely in Christ should be striving for unity. In in heaven, we're going to be one. Right? The Baptists are not going to get to meet by themselves. And the Anglicans by themselves and the Presbyterians, you know, in their holy club together. They're going to all, we're going to all be one. And we need to strive to work toward that kingdom reality in our world now because the spirit who is going to create that at the end is already unleashed in us today. So I would say we have to, we have to move in that direction. Definitely. It's local. Where Christians at a local community recognize that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and we're going to work together for the gospel in our communities. I'm not, I'm not into top-down unification schemes. If it's not owned at the grassroots level, it will never be implemented in the real way. You can't make people be one. Yes, I think we have to celebrate difference. So in other words, Jew and Gentile did not mean Jews were no longer Jews or Gentiles were no longer Gentiles. But they transcended their Jewishness and their Gentileness in Christ so that they could eat together and pray together and fellowship together, celebrating their differences uh, and their own way of looking at things. So I would say yes, uh, as long as those don't become the primary boundaries. But let's, let's face this as a reality. One of the reasons we are uncomfortable, say, with charismatic worship, if we're non-charismatic, is because we've only known non-charismatic worship. So the discomfort of that sort of worship might just be a really good thing for us to grow in our faith and to learn to be comfortable with other forms of expression in worship. I never raise my hands. You know, I grew up in a Baptist church where if you tapped your feet, you might be committing sin. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that was just a little over the top. Maybe on Sunday night gospel service music, you could tap your feet to the music. But otherwise, that's dancing. And dancing led to sex. So we were against dancing. So I, I would say we need to, I can tell you in my experience at Northern Seminary, 
with having all these diverse students in my class, it's joyous. But there are boundaries. There are things, I'm not that, that, that person and that person's not me. But we enjoy one another in Christ. And I think we can worship together. Especially at the table. Yes. I'm being asked to jump into the middle of a battle. <laughs> I would say, first of all, I don't think Paul is being coercive. He's, being, he's pulling out his best rhetorical moves. And he very clearly, he, he wants to say as often as he can, I don't want you to do this because I'm an apostle. I don't want you to do this because you're obligated. I don't want you to do this out of obedience. I want you to do this out of love for me, for love for Christ, and love for Onesimus. So, I don't think it's coercive. Any leadership that is coercive is not shaped by our king, who is a non-coercive, cruciform messiah. Cruciform is the cross. He conquered by surrendering himself and sacrificing himself. And this is a major issue in Christian leadership, is the, the passion of a vision and the power of a charismatic individual tied into narcissism and other forms of personality disorders. Create, my wife's a psychologist, so I, I get by with it. Create situations where it is, un, it is simply no longer Christian leadership. And we pray that leadership will be healed by the cross of Christ and learn to, to live the way it should. I've been in situations like that. I deal with situations like this with my students who talk to me about it. And it's extraordinarily difficult. And I think we need to meet with people, uh, avoid the gossip, meet with the pastor, talk about, you know, th this is, don't you think leadership should emerge from the people of God through the Spirit of God rather than just top down? It, it's rarely a win-win situation, sad to say. But I don't think Paul was coercive here. One of the critiques of this letter is that Paul's a manipulator. Uh, and I, I can see how people see that. I mean, you can see it. I don't want you to do this because I, you know, I want you to do this out of love. Well, why'd you bring that up? Why'd you bring it up? So, but I, I, I think Paul was a very flexible guy. You read the end of 1 Corinthians 16. He doesn't even know his plans. I plan to come home, maybe. Just depends what the Spirit leads. If I have a chance, I'll come. And that, that kind of flexibility. Paul, I think, was very susceptible to the Spirit's guidance. And that's what we need. All right? Out of time? Thank you. Thank you. Say a few words. Thank you.